much of our lives uh, could be characterized as waiting. You know, like when you're a kid, it feels like you're always having to wait for things. If you remember back when you're little, like when you're in school, you can't wait for vacation, right? Like Christmas break or summer break. Now I know that's how some of you teachers feel. Uh, and in the bigger picture, you can't wait to, like, finish school. You can't wait to get your driver's license. You can't wait to get a job, you know, make money, start a career. We wait so much of our lives. Like, so many parts of our lives are these seasons of waiting that oftentimes even the things that we wait for are like another season of waiting, right? Like, oftentimes you want to, like, get in a relationship, you know, you want to date, and you wait to find the right person. And then when you start dating, you wait to get engaged. And then when you get engaged, that itself is another period of waiting, right, to get married. Or you wait to get pregnant, and pregnancy itself is, of course, a period of waiting for labor, which is a several long, you know, several hours long period of waiting for birth. And then even after you have a kid... Um, you're in another period of waiting for them to, like, leave the house. That's the one I'm in right now. It's about going to take about 18 years, I think. Um, but, you know, those are the things, right? You, you go into these periods, like, you want to get a house, but a house is like a 30-year mortgage. You want to pay it off. You want to work. You wait to retire. And nowadays, people want to retire a lot earlier. So we spend so much of our lives in these seasons of waiting, it's uh, important that we learn to wait well. That our waiting is active, not passive. And being that Advent itself, Advent just referring to the season uh, where we celebrate the coming of Jesus. It's a perfect time for us to be reminded how to wait well. You know, and we've been exploring, we've been talking about the Advent. We've been exploring this idea of the incarnation, which really just refers to, it's a theological term that refers to Jesus taking on flesh We've been talking about what that means and why he did it. And today we're going to be looking at the events of Jesus' birth and what they meant through the lens of one specific person, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're going to see if we can't learn a little bit about what it means to wait well. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Luke. Luke uh, chapter 1. And we're actually going to start a little bit back in verse 26. Luke 1, 26. Luke uh, chapter 1. I'm going to start here in verse 26. And um, we'll take it piece by piece. And this is God's word. And it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Let's read on here. 34, it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. A couple things, like just as far as background goes. Um, what do we know about Mary? Uh, so she's from Nazareth. That's her hometown. Now, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but Mary's hometown is, is Nazareth, and Jesus is raised in Nazareth. They go back there, right? So uh, Nazareth is known as a kind of a, there are some interesting characteristics of the town of Nazareth. It's a small town, kind of a poor town in the middle of nowhere. Um, I tried to, I don't know what words I was looking up. Like, what is a word that describes a, this kind of town? And I found words like podunk and backwater. I don't think those are words we use, though. But, you know, that, that's the kind of town that, it, I guess, like a little bit ghetto. You could think of it that way. And that's the kind of town that Nazareth was, but it was also known to be a sinful place. You know, so some commentators have noted that it had that kind of reputation. So you could think of it, I think in modern terms, maybe we could think of it as a mix between like, because I try to think of what's in the middle of nowhere, like Bakersfield, maybe. And with the economy of like a Detroit and the reputation of like a Vegas Okay, so that's kind of the, the mix of what this town was. That should give you some insight for, you know, by the way, when uh, Philip finds Nathaniel and he's like, oh, I found this guy. You, know, you got to meet this guy, Jesus. And uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, and that's the idea because this is like a, you know, a sorry little bad town, right? Uh, so what else do we know about Mary? That's where Mary's from. What else do we know about Mary? Uh, either from this passage or other passages. She's a working-class, relatively poor servant girl. Uh, she's engaged, more or less, that's how we can think of it, to a working-class carpenter named Joseph. And Mary would likely have been, she's definitely a teenager. She's probably between the ages of 13 and 16 because that's normally when girls of her status at that time would get married. She's also a virgin, and she is a devout Jewish girl, like a religious girl. Now, the angel comes to her and says, hey, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be, you're going to have a kid, and that kid is going to be the son of the Most High. Now, that's kind of crazy, right? The angel comes to this, like, backwater town to this nobody girl who's a teenager and a virgin and says, you're going to have, you're going to be the mother of the Son of God, basically. Now, Mary, being a good religious girl, she probably would have heard Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14, you don't have to look at it. I'll read it real quick. It just says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? So that is one of those texts that we now understand to be a prophecy about Jesus. And right there it says that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth. Right? Now, but I'm pretty sure Mary, and really not anybody at that time, would ever think, no teenage girl of that time or any time would ever think a virgin is going to conceive. And that person, you know, the, the, the virgin 
mother of the Son of God, you know, the, the mother of the Son of God is going to be a virgin, and I don't think any teenage girl would ever think, I want to be that virgin, right? Like, I hope that text is about me, right? I don't think that's what anybody would ever think, and I'm certain, you know, I'm sure that's not what Mary thought. So she's confused, and she's like, how is this supposed to happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel explains, well, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to conceive by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is all crazy. The angel explains your relative, uh, Elizabeth, who is significantly older, who is beyond the age of childbearing, and who has been barren her whole life, suddenly is pregnant, and she's going to have a a kid, and that's going to be John the Baptist. And he's explaining this to her so that she can have some kind of sign and some kind of confirmation. Right after this passage, she goes to Elizabeth to confirm all these things. And the angel says, nothing is impossible with God upon hearing that. So this is all that's happening. This girl, you know, and I use the word girl because she's a girl. She's not like a woman. This girl in this town in the middle of nowhere that is known to be kind of sinful, who she herself has stayed devout, an angel comes to her and says, you're going to be the mom of God, basically, the son of God. And her response is, right there at the end, says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. So I would say that's, Lesson number one that we can learn from the text today. How can we wait well? Consider yourself a servant of God. You know, now, I'll explain what I mean by that a little bit. But, and servanthood certainly isn't the only part of our identity in Christ. It's not the only term that we use to understand who we are in Jesus. But it's certainly an important piece, particularly as it applies to our waiting. So let me explain. God has given all of us, like we're all in a period of waiting. I'll get back to that later. But God has given all of us gifts in our waiting, resources and opportunities. And there are two ways that we can respond to these gifts that we have, the things that we have. Uh, One way to respond is to say, I'm God's servant. That's how Mary responds. Even in this crazy circumstance, even she is just, a teenage girl, and she is going to bear this very significant role. She's going to take on this significant role in the history of humanity. And she just says, I'm God's servant. Now, remember Randy preached, you know, uh, like several weeks ago about Moses? You guys remember how Moses takes on when God comes to him and says, like, hey, you're going to go free my people? He's like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. You know, send somebody, like, oh, I suck at that. Like, I can't do it, right? Like, That's a totally different kind of response than Mary's response, who's like a little girl in the middle of nowhere. She says, I'm God's servant. That's her response. She says, I'm at your disposal, God. Whatever you want from me, whatever you have for me, that's what I'm all about. I'm your servant. That's a radical way to think and live, even for a professing Christian, if you think about it in today's 
in the age that we live in today, in today's terms, to say I don't exist primarily in the context of my education or my job or my ministry or my community or my family, to say primarily I'm a servant of God. Like that's my place in the world. That's, that is, that's a radical statement. Now the other way to respond to the gifts, the resources and opportunities that we have, is to say, these gifts exist to serve me. Right? To say that the gifts in my life, my money, my community, my church, my boss, my coworkers, my parents, my kids, my spouse, they exist for me, to grow me, to make me feel secure and happy and significant. That's why these things, the resources and the opportunities in my life exist. That's the other way that we can respond. And there is somebody in the Christmas story who does respond this way. That is how King Herod responds to the news of Jesus' birth. Because these wise men, they come. Well, we won't look at the passage, but the wise men come and they say, hey, we're here to worship the king of the Jews. We heard he's born here. We're following this star. And Herod hears about it and he's like, oh, shoot. Right? Like, that's not good news for me because I'm the king. And he, he lies and he's like, oh, I want to find out where this king is too so I can go worship him. But really, he wants to kill him. That's the other way that we can respond. Here's the danger in our waiting. Instead of living as a servant or a steward, grateful for all we have in God, we can live as a king or queen in fear of what we will one day lose, despite God, or sometimes even because of God. We may not be Herod exactly, but his example represents the logical outworking of this idea, this framework that we often have. Chasing after greater and greater control of what we've been given only leads to greater and greater fear and frustration at roadblocks or loss. And by the way, just as an aside, fear of loss has never actually prepared anyone for loss. This is something I think about for the next generation. Like, I think about my kids, and there are these real challenges ahead, like, you know, loneliness and depression and addiction. Like, these things that are happening in society are real, and there's this, like, polarization that's going on. I'm worried for the church and kind of what's happening even legally or politically. You know, they're, like, cyberbullying and unemployment and anti-Christian sentiment. Like these things are all real things that I think about it now. And it's things I didn't really think about a lot before. But as a parent, I think about it a lot more because I'm worried about the world that my kids are going to grow up in. And sometimes the, what, I, what I'm tempted to do is to think that being afraid is somehow preparing. Like if I'm worried about it or if I'm scared, somehow that's the same as like preparing them to face things. But waiting in our pessimism or fatalism only leads us to say when everything is falling apart, oh, I knew this would happen. It doesn't actually help in the tragedy. Right? You, I mean, you get to say, I told you so, I guess, when it happens. However, when we take on Mary's attitude and we're able to say, I'm a servant of God. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. 
Waiting in Christ leads us to say, even when the road is obscured, I know there's road up ahead. To say, no matter what happens, like, I'm your servant. That's not just good enough for me. That's better than what the world claims will satisfy. And we're going to see that in Mary here moving on. Let's jump down a bit. Um, So we're going to skip over a little bit to uh, verse 46. So let's jump to 46. This is known as Mary's song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. So point one would be consider yourself a servant of God. Point two would be consider God your savior. And it's important that those two things go together, right? Because we can easily be led to this idea that being a servant of God is what it's all about. And it's all about what I'm going to accomplish and what I'm going to do for God. That's not really the idea because that's predicated on this, that God is savior, So in her marveling here, Mary demonstrates a heart that has waited well. Knowing that we are God's servants and stewards of what God has given us does not protect us from the pain of loss. But knowing that God is our Savior does protect us from the pain that comes from fear of loss that has not happened. Because oftentimes that's where we're stuck. Like, what if? What would I do? How would I be okay if this happened? Mary sings this song, and it's her heart that leads her to sing out in faith instead of cower in fear. She says, God, I'm your servant. And then she says, almost immediately after that, God, you are my savior. Mary can rejoice in being a servant of God because she knows he is the Savior of Mary. Now, so she says, you know, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. She says, I'm a humble servant. Who is God? He is Lord. He is Savior, holy and mighty. What does she think about her life? She says, all generations will call me blessed. Again, that's kind of crazy when you think about the situation that she's in. She's all of a sudden going to have this child out of wedlock, okay, because she's engaged, but people are going to know that she has conceived before she got married. So what's going on there? There's certainly going to be opinions about that. She's young. She doesn't know what's going on. She's poor. Obviously, when Jesus is actually born, he's born in basically a barn. Not exactly, but that's kind of what's happening And she says about her own life, all generations will call me blessed. She believes there's value and meaning in her life. Why? Because the holy God, who is Savior, has looked upon her in love. And he has done great things. He has done great things for me. We were just singing that, right? The value statement at the heart of everyone who calls themselves a believer must be 
God has done great things for me. When you are in your lowly position, this is true of all of us. If you're a believer, then you know what it's like to be in your lowly position, rebellious, addicted, hurt, broken, and you know what it's like for God in that state, for God to see you, to chase after you, to save you by grace through faith and through Mary's son, Jesus Christ. When we wait with that kind of heart, posture when we say I am who I am like I the only reason that I am who I am is because of what God has done for me that's what it means to wait well so Mary says my soul magnifies the Lord from there on they'll call me blessed not because of what I've done but because of what God has done for me he sees God as savior she sees God as savior excuse me She sees herself as servant. She sees God as Savior. Then in verse 50, her song changes a little bit, goes from I am God's servant, God is my Savior, and then she moves on to share in God's story. Okay, and that's what we'll see here. Let's read on in verse 50. It says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I think I talked about this like last week or a couple weeks ago, but what is the world's story? The world's story is a story of not enough, right? The heart of your dissatisfaction in life is that you don't have enough money, You don't have enough time. You don't have enough friends. You don't have enough parties in your life, enough gifts, enough vacation, enough whatever. That's kind of the way the world operates, and that's how everything, that's how they get you to do stuff, right? To go places and to buy things and to add things to your life because you're always feeling like every commercial you see, like commercials are very effective, guys. Like I don't know if you know because you think they're not, right? Because you think just because you see a commercial and immediately like you see a, a Wendy's commercial or something, you don't immediately go out and go buy Wendy's. You think, oh, that's not working, right? Like this isn't working on me. Just because I see some McDonald's commercial, I don't go buy McDonald's. But it does work, right? Because when you're hungry and you're, you're nearby something, you, you're nearby a McDonald's, you're like, you know what? I should go to McDonald's. There's this, like, world market (laughs) commercial on YouTube. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this because, you know, all the ads are, like, very, you know, specifically personalized, whatever. But there's this, like, (laughs) ad for world. Do you guys even know what world market is? This is this this market. I don't know where they have bunches of stuff. But there's this uh, commercial where they're, like, the dad is – this commercial is literally 15 seconds. It's a 15-second commercial. And the dad is, is taking his kids out. It's like a girl and a boy. They're going out, and they're buying a Christmas tree. And um, he has this old picture. It's like an old, you know, film camera picture of him and his dad getting a Christmas tree. Right? And he, like, shows it. And this is a 15-second commercial, guys. Okay? I'm, ex- I'm explaining it so long, but it's just like, 
It's 15 seconds. And then uh, he shows it to his daughter, and she's like, who's that? He's like, oh, that's me and your grandpa. You know, we used to go out every year to the same place to get this Christmas tree. And then they go to World Market to get something. To get a, they, they get a tree. While they're there, the, the daughter, she picks out a, a, photo, uh, a frame, a picture frame. While they're bringing the tree in, she takes a picture of them, him and his son, you know, bringing the tree in. And then he, she frames it in the picture frame. And she gives it to him, to the dad, right? This all happens in 15 seconds. The music's going. She does it. She grabs it. She takes a picture. She puts it in the thing. She gives it to the dad. And then the dad says at the end of the commercial, after 10 seconds, the last five seconds, he looks at it. And he's like, when did you? He's like, when did you? Like that, right? And he's all like choked up because she gave him this gift, you know, that he had with his father. She's doing it for him now. He's the father and the kid, right? And literally, okay, I watched this commercial while I'm doing dishes and I almost cried. (laughs) 15 seconds. It's a 15 second commercial. And I'm like, oh, but what if, you know, (laughs) like, what if that happened to me? I put myself in that position. That's how effective these stinking like commercials are, right? I haven't been to Walmart yet, but I probably will go. Because ads and social media, by the way, which is becoming just a bigger marketplace for ads. That that's where all that's how social media makes money, right? That they can target ads to you. And the line between an ad and somebody's social media account is really getting blurred. They love to tap into the part of our brains that believe, that want to buy that narrative, that story, that not enough story. Right? Like something in our brains wants to see every good in the lives of others as some kind of lack in our own. But Mary, here's the thing about Mary. She represents the reversal of this story. She doesn't buy into that narrative that the people who have the most are the most blessed. She shares in a true story, right? One that is centered on God and who she is in light of who God is. God is Savior. I am servant. And here's the story. The true story of Jesus is that a great reversal has happened, that the rich are made empty while the hungry are filled. That's a reversal. That the mighty are humbled and the humble are exalted. That's a reversal. That is the mercy of God in the fulfillment of his promises. That is what Jesus brings into the world when he comes into the world. And there are whispers of this throughout the Old Testament, right? Amos 5 talks about, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream in the midst of an unrighteous society. Micah 5, 2. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you sh- from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel from this other small town that nobody knows of, that people don't think is great enough, will come the king of the universe, the savior of the world. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Jesus. Now, backing up a little bit, 
from Mary's time. So there's something between the Old and the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. It's like 400 plus years where God didn't say anything. Right? You know, Israel, they go through their whole history, right? Going all the, you know, they had the patriarchs, right? They went into slavery. They came out. They went into the land of Canaan. You know, they had kings. That didn't work. They, their kingdom got divided. They got conquered, what's called the exilic period, the post-exilic period. They get exiled. They get sent out of their own land. They come back into their own land. You know, there's Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of the end of the history where they're rebuilding the walls. And then for like 400 years, nothing happens. Like there's no Bible there. Because there are no prophets. Nobody's raised up. God's not saying anything to his people. So when Gabriel comes to Elizabeth and Mary... This is the first time he has said anything for hundreds of years to his people. And he comes to a conquered people, to two women who would be certainly second-class citizens in that society of an oppressed culture under the Romans, who one is too young to be significant in society and the other who's too old neither of whom should be pregnant at their ages, and yet both of whom are. That is a great reversal, that these two women are going to be so significant. They are the first ones to receive this message from God. How do we wait well? We share in that God's true story. The Herods of the world will be brought low. And the Marys of the world will be lifted up. Now, two things on this. First of all, that reversal is real. For Mary, now, but we have to understand what it means. Because for Mary, she was still poor after she sang this song. She still had to give birth to Jesus basically in a barn in a backwater town. She still lives the first years of her life on the run from Herod. You know, she has to run away to preserve her son's life. And never throughout the course of her life does she ever come into a great deal of money, a great deal of power, a great deal of anything. Yet, she still felt incredibly blessed and rejoiced in God. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So there is a real reversal that we experience, that we taste in the gospel itself because of what Jesus has done, because he came, because he lived a perfect life that we failed to, because he died the death that we deserve to, because he rose again from the dead. If we have faith in that, we experience, we share in that experience of the reversal that regardless of what happens in my life, even though things aren't what I expect them to be, even if I never make it you know, in the way that I want to or that I expect to, I achieve that status, I get that money, you know, I go to that place, this is what my family becomes, this is what people think of me. Even if none of those things happen, there is this deep joy and delight that we can have in Christ that is part of the reversal that we experience. And if you're a Christian, you know what that is. You know what that's like. 
You know what it is to grow in Jesus, to know him, for him to be there for you when things are tough, when things are bad, when things are good, to enhance that blessing. You know what it is to have community. You know what it is to be in confession. You know what it is to grow closer to God. But here's the other thing that we must remember. We are still in a season of waiting. For Jesus has come, but there are still poor. There are still broken. And this world is not perfect. It is not the way that it will be. It is not the final destination, you know, for us. It's not our home. It's not the place that we should be building or making our home. You know, I I still remember um, going through pregnancy, you know, and labor with Micah. It's very vivid to me. Um, And it was like that. There are like these periods of waiting that you do because we were waiting. Bumi and I were waiting even to try to have a kid, you know, because we're like, oh, are we in the right space? Like, Am I, you know, I would think, like, am I mature enough to even, like, think about having a kid? And repeatedly, you know, I would prove that I was not mature enough, you know, over and over. It's like, no, 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 this is ridiculous. I would, this kid will die for sure. You know, like, that's what I would think. And then we got to a place where we were ready, you know, and then we started trying. And that's another period of waiting. And then we finally got pregnant and we're happy. And then, you know, we were, we didn't get pregnant. She got pregnant. That's you know, I, I think it's weird when actually people say we got pregnant, um, you know, so she got pregnant and, you know, we're, so we're happy about that. But then that's another period of waiting. And then you go and Boomy, but, you know, if, for those of you who don't know, she has like really she had really tough pregnancies. So she's like throwing up every day. You know, I can't make anything. I toasted bread once. She got so mad at me. She's like yelling at me from upstairs like, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, sorry, I toasted bread. I had to throw it out, you know, and then I threw the toaster out. And then, you know, and like that's that's how that's what life is like. And then finally you have the kid. Right. And there's this building anticipation as you get closer to labor, and then you're in labor. You know, some of you guys know because you just had a kid. And, um, you know, that's, that's what happens, and then the kid happens. And can you imagine, though, if, like, after all that, when it's time to leave the hospital, we just leave Micah there? Right? Like, Man, that was crazy. It's like this has been years in the making, you know, and we've tried and prayed and prepared. We did classes, you know, we've done all these read books and all this kind of stuff. And then when we get there and when it's time, we just leave the baby at the hospital. We get in the car and we're like, hope we didn't forget anything. (laughs) You know, do you have your bag? Yeah, I got the bag. And we just go home and then we live our lives. That sounds ridiculous. Sometimes it's how we're tempted to live our lives. Like you forgot what you were waiting for. Like you left the baby at the hospital. It's important that we remember that this isn't it. You know, because yes, we get to taste that reversal and we get to share in it and we get to share it with people. And that is amazing. But the great reversal has not happened yet. We're still waiting for it. We're still waiting for Jesus to finally fix everything. 
you know, we're still waiting for the final vacation, right? For the final retirement when it'll all be over and we can rest forever. Not for like a week or a month or a year, for forever. And rejoice with God and have overflowing and increasing delight forever. What Jesus offers us is the experience of the true story, the reversal in our lives and our hearts and our worship and our community and our gathering, but he also acknowledges that things aren't perfect. And what he gives us in that is a hope that outlasts us, that engulfs us, that you do not contain or determine. It contains you. It's bigger than you. It will outlive us. Not only so that we could know his love and grace and forgiveness, but so that we could both experience and share that powerful hope with one another and with people who need it. Let's celebrate that today together and throughout this season. Let's pray together. I just want to read this one more time uh, from Luke 1, but, you know, you guys can meditate on it as I read it. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you, that you are our Savior, God. That there is no Savior in this world, God. No, no money, no program, no scheme, God, no thing, no person in this world that can save us, and yet you who, who do save us, who repeatedly save us, who never fails us, God, and who even when we aren't ready, you, you wait, God, for us. We thank you so much that you are available to us and that you offer yourself to us, even today, even right now, God. Thank you that you are, that you are our Savior. Thank you that you, for those of us who would put our faith in you, you call a servant. And you have so much for us, resources, opportunity, God. You have a purpose for us. And thank you, God, that we can share in this story of reversal that the arrogant will be brought low, God, that the humble will be exalted, that the poor and the hungry will be fed, God, that the broken will be healed, God, that the addicted will be free, God, that the hurt will be restored, God, that relationships that seem impossible to be mended, will be reconciled, God. 
that scars in our hearts that we loathe to dig up. God, you, you surgically repair by your gospel. We thank you so much that that is what you have for us, that is what you offer us, and that is what you allow us to give to one another. That is what we celebrate today on this Christmas Sunday. That's what we celebrate, God, every day. We thank you. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.